from Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Communism, Cold War, and Caviar. The way Russia is portrayed in the mainstream media relies heavily on these familiar stories and old tropes. With recent news about a suppressed parliamentary report into Russian interference conjures up regular narratives of spying and skullduggery. The government's decision not to publish the report before the UK's general election on December the 12th has provoked outrage. While leaks to newspapers suggest that this could have affected the Brexit referendum, although it's unquantifiable how much. The controversy has once again thrust Russia into the headlines. But how well do we understand Russia? How much does the media coverage represent independent journalism? And how much is dependent on political narratives? Are we getting the full picture of what Russia is really like? The kind of media they consume and their political culture? Welcome to the know-how a podcast aimed at bringing academics and professionals together to dissect the pressing matters of today. I'm Dr. Glenda Cooper. And I'm Dr. Lindsay Blumel. Today our guest is Professor Monica Attard. She's Head of Journalism at the University of Technology in Sydney. Before that, she served as a Russia correspondent for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation in both the 1990s and 2000s. She covered such stories as the collapse of Soviet communism, the coup against Gorbachev, the Beslan school siege and the Chechen war. Her coverage there won her three Walkley Awards and she wrote a book, Russia, Which Way Paradise, about her time there. We began by asking her about what it was like to arrive there as a young foreign correspondent in 1989. It was a really tough posting because when I got there, of course, it was still the Soviet Union and it was in as I said, in freefall, and economically it was a basket case, it was falling apart. And so the, the, the food shortages were quite considerable, and you had to face those as a correspondent as much as an average Russian did. There were fuel shortages, so, you know, I would have to queue with my little old larder, you know, at 3 or 4 a.m. to get petrol because that was when I was assigned to get petrol. It was in every sense a hardship posting. Unlike many other correspondents, Attard says her approach was to base her reporting on talking to ordinary Russians about how they saw the underbelly of the real Russia. Everything that I reported, every political event, was through their eyes. Mm-hmm. What it was like to have lived in a country uh, where your your parents, your grandparents, your forebears were, were, had sacrificed so much for a principle that was now being torn down. The Red Army tanks had rolled into the heart of the city and not even heroic gestures could stop them. Attard recalls the coup against Gorbachev in 1991 when she said she didn't sleep for five days straight. Her apartment was filled with Russians wary of being rounded up but she only felt real fear once when she went to see the tanks advancing on Parliament. It was the most terrifying moment. As it turned out, they got there, they saw the barricades that Yeltsin's people had erected around the parliament, they saw the incredible number of people, the tens of thousands of people who were there, and they kept going. Somebody had ordered them to keep going. And so bloodshed was, was, um, was avoided. Attard left Russia in the beginning of 1995, 
returning in 2003 to a society that had completely altered. For starters, you can't be a rich kid of Russia without your own private jet. These kids are constantly posting pictures to Instagram while aboard their posh planes. The era of gonzo capitalism, where rival business people took pot shots at each other with bazookas on the street, had ended. Now, there was what Attard calls Saudi Arabian capitalism. There were humongously rich people who, um, who, who really prided themselves on how wealthy they were. They were not ashamed of it. They, were, they wore it out and proud. They, um, uh, they didn't really care about people who didn't have money. It was a very selfish society. And I found that quite confronting and difficult because it wasn't the Russia that I knew and loved. I much liked the. I, I preferred the character of the Russians in the Soviet era when they were all poor and in the same boat, rowing in the same direction. But while Russia had changed, the media narrative had not. Attard is critical of the simplistic reporting out of the country, exacerbated, she says, by the closure of foreign bureau and the increasing use of fly-in, fly-out correspondence. And that means it's strongly influenced by the political elite narrative that they are receiving, um, that correspondents are working off for lack of time more than anything else, is one that has been constructed for them out of the capital, so out of London, out of Washington. Um, and that is in itself problematic because it posits there's the goodies and the baddies. The baddies are the Russians and Putin and the goodies are everybody else. This assumption by the West that if Russia wants to be a player at the capitalist table, if it wants a seat at the inter, you know, a seat at the global international table, it needs to behave in precisely the way Western societies behave, which is never going to happen. What Attard means by this is that she feels the communist order imposed so many rules and regulations that it has become a Russian way of life to find a way of overturning the established order. So even down to the kind of most minute things. Um, so the law says I've got to drive, you know, at this speed on this side of the road um, in this way, but I'm really sick of doing that. And if I don't do it this way, I get sent off to a gulag, you know, the, the most extreme example. Um, but I'm going to find a way to be able to do that and not get caught. So always trying to find a way to kind of overturn the rules and the regulations. Much Western coverage of Russian media focuses on Kremlin control and rightly the journalists who have been killed while pursuing stories. The Committee for the Protection of Journalists estimates 58 journalists have been killed in Russia since 1992. Yet this does not mean that independent journalism has been cowed into non-existence. I think that um, the perception that we have that Russians only hear propaganda is so far from the truth. The internet is not closed in Russia. Nothing is closed. You still have access to media from all over the world. There are Russian outlets that... Um, that are actually very, very good journalistic outfits that, that operate as normal journalistic outfits. Uh, and there is social media, both Western and Russian, that operate very, very freely. The person who understands the Russian mentality best is, perhaps unsurprisingly, Vladimir Putin, currently enjoying his fourth term as president. While Western media focuses on Putin's KGB past and tough image, Attard says the president understands his population acutely. 
he is an interesting character because he actually did under, he does understand he's quintessentially russian and he does understand their needs and he pampers to them all the time i mean there've been a few arrests there've been a lot of arrests but there's no but not been a real kind of no we're shutting this down this is not going to happen um and I'm I'm wondering whether that is because Putin has recognised that okay we are now generationally turning a corner where I need to start thinking about loosening things up. But questions about Russian intervention in other countries remain pressing. There's the famous Salisbury Cathedral, famous not only in Europe but in the whole world. It's famous for its 123-metre spire. It's famous for its clock, the one of the first ever created in the world that's still working. That was two Russian officers explaining their decision to visit a cathedral town in southwest England was nothing to do with the poisoning of a former double agent and his daughter. Russian interference in international affairs came to the fore with the poisoning of Sergei Nudius Skripal with a nerve agent Novichok. Atard says that Russian involvement in this case was pretty clear-cut. However, the media narrative of the shooting down of Malaysian Airlines MH17 over Ukraine in 2014, in which nearly 300 people died, she says was more complex. I mean, that's again one where the media was media following the political class was very quick to say Kremlin inspired, Kremlin approved, Kremlin orchestrated, based on nothing certainly based on no knowledge of the way the Russian military would operate in the in the far regions of the country. I think the missing link is whether is, is how much the Kremlin knew. And, and believe me, I'm no Kremlin apologist. I, there's, there's an appalling regime in so many senses. But we need to prosecute the facts. We need to get to the facts rather than using lazy terms like Russia. You know, Russia did this, Russia did that. But what is not questioned is Russian interference via hackers and troll forums particularly around the 2016 U.S. presidential elections, despite Donald Trump's statements. It could be Russia, but it could also be China. It could also be lots of other people. It also could be somebody sitting on their bed that weighs 400 pounds, okay? As early as 2015, it became clear hackers were targeting the Democratic National Committee. Presidential candidate Hillary Clinton's emails were leaked. Earlier this year, former special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into the election found that Russia interfered in the vote in a sweeping and systematic fashion, something Professor Attard concurs with. They very deliberately did. They deliberately um, sought to um, interfere uh, via social media in the U.S. election process, and they did it. I think they surprised themselves, but they did it. I have no doubt that that level of interference continues. No doubt whatsoever. I mean, the, the bigger question, though, is whether or not, um, which was part and parcel of uh, what we've seen unfold in the since the 2016 US election, and particularly with the Mueller investigation, is whether there has been any concerted um, alliance between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin. That I think the jury's out on. We still there's no evidence of that. Attention is now spreading to Russia's possible intervention in the UK, with MPs on both sides of the House having urged the Prime Minister to release the report before the election. 
Here's the Shadow Foreign Secretary, Emily Thornbury, just before Parliament rose. A vital part of cooperation with our NATO allies is defending ourselves against Russian attempts to interfere with our democracy. To that end, can I ask the Secretary of State what possible reason the government can have to delay the publication of the ISC report until after the general election? What on earth do they have to hide? Boris Johnson has stated that he has never seen any evidence of Russian interference, but the questions continue. Attard finally left Russia after covering five civil wars, but she realised it was time to go when a succession of terrorist attacks in Moscow meant it would take more than an hour just for her child to get into school because of checks for bombs, and she was driving past a worker cleaning blood and gore out of buildings. However, she has one last word of advice for those who might follow in her footsteps. And to be honest with yourself, because if you don't like a place, you can't report it well. Which is not to say you have to love everything about it, but you have to at least like it. (laughs) You can't hate it. You've been listening to The Know How, the podcast that dissects pressing issues with academics and experts. It was presented by Lindsay Blumel and Glenda Cooper and produced by Atina Dimitrova. For more information on this and our other episodes, please go to our website, www.thenowhowpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Know How Podcast or on Facebook at The Know How Podcast.